Welcome to Present Company, the Netflix podcast that brings you dynamic conversations with exceptional people behind your favorite series, films, documentaries, and specials. I'm your host, Krista Smith. For years, I was Vanity Fair's ambassador to Hollywood, interviewing countless actors as well as creatives and authorities across the spectrum. My passion is talent, any form of it. How do you know you have it? How do you cultivate it? How do you protect it? And also, I want to get to the heart of what drives it. On this podcast, I'll be talking to people in Hollywood and far beyond. Thank you for joining me. Hi, everyone. For today's episode, I sit down with one of the sharpest, funniest guys in Hollywood, Kumail Nanjiani. Kumail's career has been strapped to a rocket ship in the last few years. He was Oscar-nominated along with his wife, Emily V. Gordon, for Best Original Screenplay for their film, The Big Sick, which was based on their personal story. He was also Emmy-nominated for his work on Jordan Peele's The Twilight Zone. He was cast in The Eternals, the new Marvel movie, and made the internet basically lose its mind over a shot of his very buffed physique. And now he's got a huge hit streaming on Netflix called The Lovebirds, in which he stars opposite the fabulous Issa Rae. Look, I'm sorry I have to kill you guys. You seem like a nice, though somewhat annoying couple. But if it makes you feel any better, I will get over it. You don't have to do this, okay? You're not a killer. You're a good person. I can see it in your eyes. Your eyes are so kind. They're luminous. Do you know how many people I have killed today? Uh, I would say you've killed, like, exactly the right number of people. I wouldn't add to it. Because right now, the number of people you've killed is impressive, but not, like, worrying. Also, you killed a guy on a bicycle and a bunch of frat boys. Who's kidding who? You're practically a folk hero. That was a rhetorical question. Never too late to change. Oh, and he also has his own podcast with his wife called Staying In with Emily and Kumail. So get comfortable because we cover a lot of ground. So enjoy. Here is Kumail. Kumail, it's a, so great to talk to you, um, especially after your film, Lovebirds, is number one on Netflix. How exciting is that? Oh, it's so exciting. It's like, it's such a thrill. I mean, I'm so, it's, it's, it's awesome because, you know, it's obviously we're in a place where we can't go to movie theaters or anything. So I'm thrilled that Netflix got the movie and thrilled that people watched it. How surreal is it to kind of vir- to virtually open a film like this. I mean, one that you guys had been planning to go to South by Southwest with, and it was going to have a kind of traditional rollout. Uh, how has the virtual opening been for you? Well, you know, initially, obviously, I, you know, I love going to South by Southwest. That's super fun. And I love seeing, you know, the fact is I haven't seen this movie in a theater. And so, so that's certainly something I miss. However, Having it, this is the first movie I've had that's gone straight to Netflix. And the response has been so big and so overwhelming. I think ultimately the it just leads to a much bigger audience. So even though we're not like out having a premiere and watching people watch it in the movie theater, ultimately I think it's, it's having a bigger impact than it would have had it gone to theaters. Mm-hmm. Well, it's huge. I had... <laughs> 
there were a lot of I, I laughed a lot out loud in this movie. And I really don't want to admit this, but throughout all the like kind of fighting and bickering scenes, I don't know what that says about me, but it was just really well written. And you guys had a lot of chemistry and the laughs were just so spot on, I felt. It's exactly what we needed. Oh, thank you. Yeah, the fights, you know, Isa and I, first of all, love Isa, love working with her. And for that opening sort of romantic uh, little montage and then the argument too, that argument we spent a lot of time on because we really wanted it to feel like these are people who have been together a long time. They know each other really well, and they've basically been fighting about the same things for a while. So so that opening argument, we really wanted it, you to feel the history of these two characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it just takes you from there. It goes, it just moves very fast from that point. Talk to me about Issa Rae, because we're all kind of in love with her. Let's just admit it. Like, she came on the scene, obviously, an insecure, and just like, who is this girl? Uh did you guys want to work together? Did this project both come to you both at the same time? Tell me about how you actually got Lovebirds made. So I'd been a huge fan of Issa's from her TV show, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Insecure, obviously. Love her show. Big fan of hers. Love that. You know, I just, I just love everything she stands for, which is obviously she's very funny. She's very smart. She's very conscious. She just sort of is everything that you want an artist to be, really. And so... Um, I, I was just a big fan of hers. The I had had the script and I was sort of attached to it for a few months already. And every now and then I'd hear like, hey, what do you think of this person? What do you think of this person? And there just wasn't anybody that I was really that excited about. And then they emailed and said, they said, Issa Rae read it. Uh, she's interested. What do you think? And I was like, oh, my God. Just do everything you can to make sure that she does it. I, I just, I remember that email. I can picture that email in my head. And I was just immediately like, yes, of course, we, we, we got to do it with Isa. And then at that point, once she came on, things started moving really, really fast. And we started shooting uh, not too long after that. I mean, what's also exciting about this is we get to see a rom-com with, two people of color in it. And I think that that's something we haven't seen before either. And that to me was super exciting to watch. Yeah. And that wasn't even what a cool, awesome thing, but it wasn't even something that we had really thought about Issa or I until we started shooting. I was just like, oh, I'm so excited to be working with Issa, such a huge fan of hers. And I thought that our pairing would be interesting because there are ways in which we're different and ways in which we are similar. So I thought that that would be an interesting combination. And while we were shooting was when we realized like, oh, wow, this is a multiracial couple in a way that we haven't seen in a long, long time. You just don't you just don't see that. You don't see in movies like this uh, such a diverse couple. So that was obviously like a very exciting thing to be able to represent that. But I was honestly just so excited to work with Issa. So tell me, I know you guys obviously must have improved a lot and, you know, clearly there's a script and, and, but what was the part for you, your favorite part of kind of sparring, the verbal sparring with her and doing the action stuff with her? What, what, what can you tell me like part for you? What was the, the greatest joy that you took away from that? I really enjoyed the scenes where it's just me and Issa sort of going back and forth, right? So I really enjoyed doing the romantic montage in the beginning. I really enjoyed doing the argument that we have 
going in through, into the car. And then I really enjoyed the diner scene as well. I mean, oh, the all diner. The scenes are, <laughs> yeah, all the scenes are super fun to shoot and it's such a great movie. But I feel like the moments where it's just me and Issa hanging out, talking, arguing, discussing, bickering, whatever it is, were the most fun because... Usually, you know, when you're shooting, there's all this other pressure of got to hit your mark. You're running around. It's exhausting. But those scenes where I'm just me and her together and being able to really let loose, I would say those are definitely the highlights for me when we were shooting. Well, I think that your lecture on the milkshake extra, the silver, (laughs) (laughs) that whole bit is going to be the stuff of legend. I have a feeling like that's going to be its own (laughs) meme. And when... You were talking about it. Like, why do you always get the extra? Why is it you don't get extra spaghetti? Why is that? I I thought about that for the first time ever. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm not complaining. I like that you get extra milkshake, but I do think it's weird <laughs> that they bring it in in the container that they made it. Like, it just feels nothing else fits. You know, you don't get the steak on, on like a grill. You don't get like chicken in a pan, but... But with milkshake, you get it in the container that they made it in. Like, it's so you know, funny. I, I, it's it, such a weird, <laughs> weird thing. And, you know, that moment we were looking for, basically, you know, Gibran's issue is that he he has he's scared of problems, right? He sort of runs away from mm-hmm. them. He's looking for distractions when this happens. So that moment for us was we were trying to figure out what really mundane thing could he get obsessed with <laughs> instead of solving the huge issue of, you know, trying to get out of this like murder that they've been framed for. <laughs> He's going on and on about his issues with milkshakes. He's pouring all his worry into milkshakes. <laughs> and and so, uh, yeah, we were just looking for something very like mundane for him to get really worked up about. And that just felt so funny. <laughs> all right. So you had the same director, uh, Michael Showalter, right? That did The Big Sick. Correct. Correct. Yes. So, did you always want him to to direct this? Was this something that you guys uh, decided before that he was going to be on board? No, Mike came on pretty late in the game. Actually, we were only a few weeks out of shooting when Mike came on, um, and we were obviously very lucky that that happened and and thrilled because. You know, I'd worked with Mike on the big sick, as you said, and we had this, I knew we had a shorthand and and I knew we really like got each other and knew how to work together. And Mike is just really good at the comedy stuff and the emotional stuff. You know, it's hard to find directors who, who, who can sort of do both. And Mike's just a very, very funny guy. So, so I knew that if we were able to have Mike direct this movie, it would just make everything funnier just because he's always constantly pitching jokes and ideas and lines mm-hmm. and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he knows it. He knows it all. That's got to be, I think, one of the great things about Hollywood to me is those partnerships that form over time. When you know people and you work with them again and again and again, sometimes it's just your best your best self is put forward. I think so, because so much of, you know, when you're making a movie, there are so many people involved working together, right? And I find no matter the size of the project, it always takes a few days for everything to sort of become a well-oiled machine, right? It's just the nature of it. You have like 100 or 200 people coming together to make one thing. There's a little bit of, not growing pains, but there's a little bit of a learning curve in the beginning. So the more you can just work with people you know, the quicker the quicker you could sort of 
you know, hit the ground running, I think. I think, um, and I totally see why these, as you said, these partnerships happen over and over with directors and actors because, and a big part of it is trust. You know, working with a director, acting is a vulnerable thing, right? You're really like putting yourself out there. So you really want someone that's going to trust you or that you can trust, I should say. Because, especially with comedy, a lot of times you're making yourself look foolish. And you, as an actor, can't always evaluate while you're doing it. Like, is this is this too stupid? Is this going to work? Am I just going to look like a buffoon? Oh, looking like a buffoon's okay, but is this going to be, like, foolish in the movie? And so if you can work with someone who you can really trust, then you can really, really cut loose and go for it and know that they'll that they'll make it work. Well, you're having quite a moment. You've been having quite a moment for a while. Uh, it gets kind of incredible. When I was going back to do some research on you about the trajectory of your career, it's so exciting to watch this ball just like gain more and more and more momentum and land in a Marvel movie <laughs> for right now. But we'll we'll get back. We'll get to that a little bit later. But what I want to talk to you about you have such an interesting, uh, you made such interesting choices along the way. And one, the fact that you even went into stand up too is incredible to me coming from Pakistan and going to Grinnell, uh, which is such an academic, I don't think of that as theater, a theater school at all. But I want you to talk a little bit about growing up, what made you want to come to America and go to Iowa of all places? Um, the plan was always since I was a little kid that the whole family, that I would move to America, that my brother would move, and then the whole family would move. That was sort of always the plan. And I went to Iowa because I didn't really, I just applied to a bunch of schools. I just didn't know, you know, I really had no sense of what Iowa was like. I knew America from like movies and TV shows, and you don't really see Iowa very much. I had not seen. <laughs> Most people in America don't know what Iowa is. Right, it's like very specific. Right. Yeah. Midwest. Yeah, it is. It's very specific. It's very different from, you know, in movies you see New York and L.A. and Iowa is not like that. And I had not seen Field of Dreams then. So so I just didn't know what I was. Ex- I mean, I knew what I was expecting, which was either New York or L.A. And I when I got to Iowa, uh, it was definitely very surprising. And at what point in that experience did you realize like, oh, I'm going to do stand up, probably one of the hardest things to do? Not until my last year of college. So it was my senior year of college. It was that thing, you know, where um, uh, I, I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to get a job in. I don't feel like I'm good at anything that could actually make me money. I didn't feel passionate really about about anything that I was generally studying. I mean, I, I, I don't want to, you know, I had amazing professors, but I saw... You know, I saw my classmates be really excited and passionate about the projects we were doing. And I was like, oh, I just don't feel that way about this stuff. So I just really, really fallen in love with stand up by that point. And it was it was one of those things where I was like, I have to try it. I don't have I don't have a choice. It wasn't like I decided I'm going to be a comedian. It wasn't like that. I just was like, I, I, I have to try this. I love this way too much to not not tried. I was terrified of getting on stage and terrified of public speaking, was was very, very shy. So um, yeah, it was senior year of college was the first time there was a little coffee shop on campus and they did a little comedy show and three of us like college kids just 
went up and, and tried stand up for the first time, all of us. And I imagine that that gave you the confidence to continue. I mean, to this day, that first set is still one of the best sets I've ever had. The first time I got on stage, I did like over 30 minutes, which is just so cocky, so arrogant. You know, I just got up, did 30 minutes in front of, it's a tiny room. It's like, you know, over 100 people, like 200 people packed in. They're either my friends or people from the same college who just want to support whoever's on stage. So it was just the easiest, most supportive audience imaginable and then you get on stage and for like a half hour, it just felt, it was like the greatest feeling <laughs> in the world. Like I've been watching all these people doing it. And then I was doing the thing that like my heroes have been doing and it was going well. So yeah, the first time really, really gave me confidence. I know a lot of people, great comedians who get on stage and they're like, you know, the first five times they're bombed. I'm like, if I hadn't done well that first time, I would not have done it again. I don't know how you guys like stuck to it until you got like that first good time on stage. Mm -hmm. I read, I, I think it was in your the New Yorker piece that you talked about being very adamant about not being known as, let's say, the immigrant comedian. Oh, that guy, he's he he does that. But you actually really had a fight against that because it could have been easy money for you. Can you talk to me a little bit about that decision and that process for you? So I started basically I graduated college in 2001, moved to Chicago and started doing stand up comedy uh, outside of college in August. So this was right before September 11th, right? So I, I right. was just like a couple of weeks into doing stand-up. September 11th happened and then suddenly the world changed and the way that people looked at me and looked at like brown men was very different. And a lot of people don't realize this or don't know it. But right after that, there were a huge amount of sort of Muslim comedians who started performing. Like there were like all these news stories about it. You know, there were like a bunch of comedians sort of came on and, and started touring and some of them were funny. But I felt like all of them were sort of going to the same topics. You know, uh, they were all doing the same thing. And I said, if I want to be truly original, which is the point of being a comedian, you, you don't want to just do jokes that other people are doing. You want to be able to, you want to have your own voice. You want to do a joke that nobody else would be able to do. You know, that's the goal. And none of the comedians that I was a fan of were really like big into doing like ethnic comedy in that way or stereotype comedy in that way. Mm -hmm. So I decided pretty early on right then when I saw these guys sort of getting a lot of success at the time and and, and really touring and, and making money and stuff. But I was like, I don't, that's not, that's not my path. I've just seen so many like people doing the same jokes when they're like working in that same ballpark. So I was like, and it just wasn't, it just didn't appeal to me. I just didn't think it was very funny. So so I was like, no, I, I want to sort of do my own thing. I, I want to figure out what my voice is, not have uh, this this massive event that's happening uh, dictate my voice to me. So I, I, pretty early on, I decided I wouldn't like do that kind of stereotype comedy. Mm -hmm. And how big of a break was that Letterman appearance? Do you Do you feel like that was the moment where everything shifted for you. I think that was in 2000 and 2009 when you went on Letterman. I can't remember. I think it was somewhere around there, 2008, right. 2009. Yeah. To be honest, no. Um, you know, I for me, doing Letterman was, 
was the big goal, right? I was I I I started comedy partially because of Letterman, because of Conan, and I loved those shows. And and so to me, that was like a goal. I was like, when I do Letterman, I'll I'll know I have made it, right? But but and I expected I would do the set, and then it'll explode, and my life will be different. It wasn't like that in two thousand nine anymore. You know, I mean, those shows back when. You know, Johnny Carson was 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 hosting the Tonight Show, or or the earlier days of Letterman. There was a time when everybody was watching those late night shows. You go, you do a set, and the next morning you're famous, you're a celebrity. Mm-hmm. That was not my experience. I don't think that is what was happening at that point anymore. There had been enough channels, and the audience had gotten splintered enough that it didn't really. I would say it was it was something that. Was was more for me. I felt like um, you know I accomplished something. I certainly you know I'm a, it was a sense of, like a point of pride for me that I did Letterman. But it didn't really. I wouldn't say that that Letterman set really led to led to anything beyond just being what it was. It was sort of the end in itself. It wasn't a means to an end. Right. It was just another thing that you did and you did well and you kept trudging along. Right. But I would say there certainly have been a couple things that I've been lucky enough to do where I really felt like, okay, this is something now, now, now things are changing. Like I've certainly had a couple of those little moments where. Oh, tell me about those moments. I would say I did um, the first sketch that I did for Portlandia, which is the show Fred Armisen and Carrie Brownstein mm-hmm. show that John Kreisel created and directed. Oh yeah, excellent show. It's an amazing show, right? And I, I was a huge fan of both of theirs. And and I remember I was I just moved to LA. We were in our tiny apartment, and I got an email that was like, "Hey, you're going to do this." Like, I was doing a festival in Seattle, and they were like. Could, do you want to just drive to Portland? They want you to do like a little bit in the sketch show that they're doing for IFC. And I was like, the independent film channel is going to have a sketch show? <laughs> it seems crazy. But I was like, if it's Fred, I'll do I'll do anything. He's so funny. And so I went and I did this very quick sketch. Emily and I both went. And I remember uh, we just, it's a, it's a sketch where they have lost the mayor, played by Kyle McLaughlin. And they have to go and just get a cell phone to track him. And I'm the guy who's like the cell phone salesman who's just trying to upsell them on plans. And the whole sketch is just me upselling them on plans. Um, and there was no script. You know, John Kreisel was like, uh, we'll just improvise the whole thing, whole thing. So I sort of looked up a bunch of like cell phone salesman scripts and this kind of stuff. And, and we shot that. It took the whole thing like... It took an hour and a half. We did a five-minute scene in an hour and a half. It was amazing. I remember I got to set around seven, and uh, I finished that, shot the whole thing in like an hour and a half. I think we did like three takes. And I came back to the hotel room, and Emily was still in bed, and I was like, I think that that was really... I was like, I've never done anything like that where it was so improvised. And I was like, that felt really funny. That felt like really... Like I got to be like... part of a cool and special thing. And then when that sketch came out, that was the first time a lot of people had seen me. And that first sketch, me uh, as a cell phone salesman, uh, got me a lot of attention and a lot of jobs because I don't know how huge the Portlandia audience was, but I know a lot of people who make movies and TV shows watched it. And so that first sketch really led to a lot of stuff for me. Right. I mean, that's the important eyeballs are watching, I guess, as they say, because you did. You went through the kind of zeitgeist of cool. You did the Inside Amy Schumer. You 
community, Broad City. And then it basically that got, did that all lead to Silicon Valley? So Silicon Valley, I forget. I think Silicon Valley was right around, it was after, it was certainly after, well after Portlandia. And it was, I think Broad City was around then. I, I forget. I think I'd already been doing Silicon Valley when I did Broad City. Oh, but okay. yeah, Silicon Valley was one of those, just one of those things. You know, I heard that Mike Judge was doing an HBO show and I was like, oh, wow, that sounds amazing. I'm a fan of his, obviously HBO. And I auditioned. And at that point, I had auditioned and gotten a very small part in an episode of Veep season two. I had like three scenes with Julia Louis-Dreyfus in an episode of Veep. So I did the audition for Mike, uh, for Mike Judge, and generally, you know, you also then do like a network test. So then you audition for the HBO people. But HBO had already seen me in Veep, so I didn't have to do that. So I got to skip a step. So I just auditioned for Mike. You know, they they called me. Mike said, "Listen, I really like you, but the." Two parts that you audition for, we don't think, I don't think you write for, but don't worry, I'll write another part for you. And people say that all the time. They never mean it. It never happens. And then they just called and were like, hey, we wrote a part for you. Do you want to do it? And I was like, yeah, I'll do it. Um, so yeah, it all sort of, you know, Silicon Valley was another big life-changing thing, obviously, being on like a cool show that was successful and getting nominated for Emmys that people watched. Like that was that 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 really changed my life for good. Well, it was also such it was such an excellent show because it sended up that world that everyone was so curious about. You know, what's what's Silicon? What is this thing? And the, I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> oh, thank you. Funny. And you know, when we started, when we did the pilot, people hadn't keyed into how crazy Silicon Valley was. So people would be like, what's the show you're doing? I'm like, it's called Silicon Valley. And they're like, oh, is it set in the 90s? And I was like, no, what's <laughs> happening in Silicon Valley right now is crazier than anything that happened in the 90s. And within the six months of, between the six months of us, like shooting the first episode and like then airing it, people had really, really gotten obsessed with Silicon Valley. There was like a little period. It's hard to imagine, but I'm telling you, when I did that pilot, people thought I was doing like a period show. Uh, but when the show came out, people were like fascinated, rightly so, by Silicon Valley and the uh, and the people and the people in it. So, so that show was one of those that like hit at just the perfect time, you know, where it started off with people being really fascinated and impressed by Silicon Valley and went all the way through. It just ended. But now when people have sort of gotten really disillusioned with Silicon Valley, where, where uh, you know, we've seen how social media and stuff has led to uh, has, the ways that in the ways in which it's it's made our lives more difficult. So it kind of was there for a very uh, important chunk of time. It's interesting that you bring up that timeline, because I'm curious about how you Kumail, your feelings on social media and chat and, and tech technology and whatnot changed over the course of shooting that shooting that show and being so immersed in that world? Good question. Right from the beginning when we did the pilot and we went and met all these people, you know, the big Silicon Valley people, the, the celebrities of Silicon Valley, we knew then we were like, oh, these guys are arrogant pricks. Like we knew immediately we were like, oh, these people are all like they're all full of themselves and, and all that stuff. They're like, 
I don't know if I can say douchebags on this podcast, but I can't think of another word. So they really were like that. Um, but the you know the general population was sort of very impressed by these people. I would say I loved social media. I was a big, big like I was one of the early Twitter people. Um, you know, I, I it allowed me to tour. You know, back in the day when you would do stand up. Um, if you weren't like really famous, you had to go and do all these radio shows and morning shows and all this stuff and all this press. And it just felt like you just couldn't get to your audience. But once, you know, I had a little bit of a Twitter following, I could sort of go to smaller cities and, and just tweet about it. And people who really knew me and liked me would come to see the show. So initially Twitter was a real godsend, you know, now I feel like Twitter is, I, I I really think that social media, I'm going to sound like an old person here, but <laughs> I, I think social media ultimately has caused more harm than good. I, I understand there's still a lot of good to it. I, I, I see what's happening. People are like organizing to, to protest or organizing around good causes or information is being spread. But, but I think ultimately it's... Um, Let's say I spend less and less time on on Twitter and on, on Twitter than I used to, for sure, for sure. Mm-hmm. I, I try not to ever look at my mentions because there be dragons. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get to the big sick because to me that is obviously huge. You're telling your life story about your your wife Emily, uh, played by Zoe Kazan. And it becomes this movie. I remember being at Sundance and it was this movie where I was like, oh, man, have you seen it? It had that early buzz. And of course, Judd Apatow was executive producer. And so it had that, oh, Judd, oh, come on. And from the first moment that the movie screened, I think it was at the Egyptian and it was sold out. We're all jammed in there as you do when when you're in Sundance. And the momentum just steamrolled all the way to the Oscars, you guys were uh, nominated for Best Screenplay, to you becoming uh, a Time Man of the Year, to endless other awards. It's too much to keep track of all the nominations you got and and some, you know, a lot of them you won. But I want you to, like, reflecting back on that, even though it's only a couple of years, you know, how, what was that like for you to go through that? And what was, was there a letdown afterwards or was it just a continued elation. No, there was no letdown. It was one of those things, you know, where Emily and I with Judd, I mean, Judd and Barry Mendel, one of the producers, we we all worked so hard on that script and that movie. and, And we finally got like a very small amount of money to make it. It really felt like, you know, we were like, oh, this is the dream. Even if nothing else happens from this, we get to tell our own story in a way that we can be proud of. So we, so we, so we, we made it as we were shooting, we we you know the cast is unbelievable. You mentioned Zoe, but Ray Romano, Holly Hunter. I mean, this cast is unbelievable, right? And then we edited the movie, and when the movie was done, we were like, okay, we're very proud of this movie. This is exactly the movie movie we wanted to make. I don't know if anybody else cares or is going to be interested in this. And that night at Sundance, it, you're right. It was this sort of really intense thing. I remember Emily and I were sitting next to each other and I think it's like 1,400 people in that room. And uh, Emily was like, oh, this is the last time it's going to be our story. You know, I had not thought to the point, I'd only put thought into like making the movie. I'd never thought 
to the point where people would actually watch it. And then as, you know, as we were watching it, it was going really well. Afterwards, I was like deer in headlights. I didn't know. I, I remember I was on stage and people were applauding and I was standing next to Judd and I was like, how did that go? And Judd was like, are you kidding? That was a home run. <laughs> and we found out that, you know, we had like a little party afterwards and Barry, the producer was like, you can tell how well the movie did by like, which studio execs show up to the party. Right. And so we were at the party, like who's going to show up? And then like everybody showed up, you know, and that night we started getting offers. So we knew like, it certainly was, Emily and I felt like we were, it was our wedding. <laughs> you know, it was like, we were sort of these, this, the, the couple of Sundance for, for a few days. It was really exciting. And then having it come out in theaters, getting nominated for an Oscar. I mean, it just kept going. It kept, it's an overwhelming experience. We talk about it like this is not relatable at all, but as our Oscar year, you know, where we like got nominated, got to go to all these parties, meet all these people who are our heroes. And um, th there was no letdown. By the time the Oscars were done, it was amazing, but it also had been an extremely exhausting year. We'd gone from making the movie to like premiering it in Sundance to Basically, because it was it wasn't a wide release, it was like a platform release. We traveled all over the country, all over the world for months and months and months to promote it. And then the, you know, the campaigning for the Oscars. So by the time it was done, we were like, okay, I just wanna be with you in a locked room <laughs> for a month and not talk to anybody. So there was no there was no real letdown, but 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 it completely changed absolutely changed both our lives. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you, were your parents more excited by the Oscar nomination or the Time Person of the Year award? Oh, man. I don't know. I think time, I guess it's not Time Person of the Year. It would be the Time 100. Time 100. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Time 100. I think it was definitely the Oscar nomination. I remember okay. watching the Academy Awards with my dad. He's a big movie fan. I, you know, I, uh, I love movies because of him. That's where I got my love of movies. And so we would watch the Oscars. And when I was a kid, I had like VHS, I'd recorded a bunch of the Oscars off the TV and I would watch them over and over and over. So to get to go there and see it, something that my dad and I shared together uh, was, I think, very very special. As a kid, what did you love about the, the show? Was it seeing the movie stars or is it what was it about it that made you want to watch it again and again? Yeah, I just love seeing the movie stars sort of being themselves. I remember anytime Robin Williams did anything on stage, I would watch that over and over. I liked the glitz and the glamour of it and I, I wasn't able to articulate it then, but I loved movies so much. And I think watching the Oscars was was cool because I was seeing other people who were as passionate about movies as I was. It was like such a, and it still is such a celebration of movies. And there was really nothing else like that. So I think that's what I keyed into most was, was just that these people were celebrating the thing I loved the most. Did you have a favorite movie star or comedian or show or anything growing up? Well, I would say, you know, Robin Williams was somebody that I was always, uh, that I've been a fan of since I can remember. Bill Murray, somebody I've been a fan of since I can remember. Harrison Ford, you know, because uh, I, I loved, um, w with <laughs> with Robin Williams, I loved a lot of his stuff. 
but but Popeye was a movie I watched a lot. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, and uh, with you know with Shelley Bill Murray, obviously, mm-hmm. yeah, she's great. With uh, with uh, Harrison Ford, it was the Indiana Jones movies, and with Bill Murray, it was Ghostbusters, and then pretty much everything he he really ever did. So yeah, those were sort of the people that I really, I mean, I thought they were the greatest, and this they still are. They still are. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, Han Solo, as we call him in our house, uh, it's incredible how he's you know every generation now my kids I, I loved him from like you from the Indiana Jones and from Star Wars and now I have two boys and they love him from because the, they rediscovered those movies obviously they went back and watched all of them and yeah yeah <laughs> no I got to meet Harrison Ford that year our Oscar year I remember I was backstage at something and I turned behind me and there he was, like literally less than a foot away. And he said, hi, I'm Harrison. And I was like, hey, I'm Kamel, nice to meet you. Um, and then ran into him again a couple of years later somewhere. And at that place, we actually like chatted a little bit. And the whole time I was like, I have to, I can't keep ch- chatting to him. I'm too nervous. I don't want to take up his time. There are plenty more, like more interesting, more famous people here that he would rather be talking to. But he was... Very, very lovely, very charming, and very, very kind. I, I really love him. That's a great story. Um, all right, let's talk a little bit about you and your wife, because you have been uh, very productive during our quarantine. You guys have a podcast called Staying In with Emily and Kumail, and I've listened to uh, a few of them. And one of the things that I love you guys talk a lot about is food. <laughs> <laughs> especially you had Isa on and you're talking about food. And I was uh-huh. like, I can't believe I'm actually listening to a conversation about sweet potatoes for 20 <laughs> minutes and loving it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We, uh, Isa's, you know, I am certainly obsessed with food and Isa's one of the other people I've met who's almost as obsessed as, with food as I am. And we were shooting lovebirds. We were talking about food a lot and Isa would find, she found this, um, on Instagram, she found this like cookie company that would like, you know, you have to order once a week and the orders like the, you like you got to jump on it at like 8 a.m. and then they're gone for the week. And and it was so sweet of her. I was we finished shooting. I was back in L.A. and one day I got a box of those cookies. So, yeah, Issa's Issa's uh, Issa loves food as much as I do. <laughs> um, so also you I mean, it's been all over the Internet. You got exceptionally buff for your movie, or not exceptionally, but it was a it was a lifestyle change, right? For you, yes. for Eternals, and I find that anytime you're focused on any kind of physical transformation, it's the only thing you can talk about or think about. How am I exercising? Yes. What am I eating? What am I not eating? It's like your day is mapped out in food and fitness. So, are you continuing that kind of regimen? Did you have that experience with that? Did you drive your wife crazy? Yes. Answer to most of those is an emphatic yes. Definitely drove Emily crazy. Definitely got too obsessed with, as you were saying, the food and the fitness and and tracking what I was eating and how much I was eating and how much I was working out and looking up new workouts and, and trying to really, because it's hard, you know, you know, it's, um, I had a certain amount of time to do this. I had like basically a year to get really, really get in shape. So if I'd started this, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I could have just gone slowly, figured it out and and gotten to where I am now. But I had such a compressed amount of time that I 
did really get obsessed with it. Emily got really sick of me talking about it. I read like science papers on it and stuff. And and I would like make new discoveries and like tell her and I would watch her eyes just glaze over. And I was like, honey, I can't <laughs> talk to anybody else about this stuff. They're going to think I'm shallow, but your love for me is unconditional. Although I think that that was challenged during that, <laughs> during last year. I would say now, you know, I've been doing it now. It's been a long time. And, and I think Getting to it is much harder than keeping it. Keeping it is a lot. Um, I, I won't. I don't want to say it's easy. It's certainly not easy. But you can sort of go on autopilot a little bit. So I will say now that the food and fitness thing, I'm not as strict as I was back then. But but it's still. Yeah, I'm still working out. Still keeping up the regimen. And I mean, I'm still. I still am tracking what I eat every day. I just uh, cheat a little bit more. What is your one? Weakness that you can't resist when you see it. Uh, I'll give you two. One that I can never eat is rice. I love rice so much. And, you know, being Pakistani, like it's in so much of our food. And rice is one thing that when I was getting in that shape, I was like, I cannot do any rice. Rice has to be zero because it's like it's like a drug, you know, like I can't just do a little bit. Other than that, I have a really, really wicked sweet tooth. So like Mm. cake, pastries chocolate, like all that stuff is what I miss the most. Oh, baked good. That's my weakness. <laughs> yeah, baked goods. It's hard. You know, Emily's been, Emily actually made some really good uh, cookies today. So <laughs> I had two and now I'm like, okay, so now I can't eat that. I can't eat that. Dinner has to be this. Uh, they were just so good with like raspberry jam in them. Mm. So yeah, I would say rice and baked goods and Mm -hmm. LA you know we were in London shooting Eternals and they have where we were staying there were three bakeries on every block it was very challenging oh those scones those like well the British pastries delicious well it's interesting you and Emily were the er were super early adapters into podcasts yeah, we were early on and we joked that we got out just as it got lucrative. <laughs> I was we, just going to say. <laughs> yeah, we really hopped off. We we did it for four or five years. We did a podcast called The Indoor Kids that was like about video games. And, and it was pretty, you know, it was very successful. It was like number four in gaming podcasts or something. And and then we, we did it for a long time. And then eventually we were like, it just, you know, as the big sick was ramping up, it was so much work that we kind of had to stop doing a lot of the stuff that we'd been doing. And that was one of the casualties mm-hmm. of that. But it's also, you know, we love playing video games and then having to like talk about it and having to play like a new video game every week. I was like, I'd rather just play the same game for, for months than have to like try every new game that comes out. So it just sort of turned our hobby into something that required research and, and work. And we, we just went back to, Video games just being a hobby. Are you surprised by the uh, giant success of podcasts and the kind of it's like a hockey stick, just like straight up in terms of interest? Uh, Podcasts in general? Yeah, in general. Yeah, I guess it's not surprising because, you know, with comedy, the hard thing has always been like when you go when I tour, right? Like unless you're like very famous, you just go to a comedy club and you're going to have maybe 25 percent of people there who know you and like you. And 75% of people who just went to a comedy club. With podcasts, because the audience is self-selecting, a person can really find the stuff that they're really into. Like, where else are you going to find, like, you know, you can't have any show on TV that, like, 
you, you're into science, you're into history, you're into comedy, you're into video games. You're not going to find anything that does all that. But with podcasts, you really can find like the four or five things you really love. And so it really does make sense to me because it's really, really targeted stuff. You know, you could really find a podcast about about anything. And I don't think I don't think there are any two people in the world who listen to the exact same podcasts. Um, it's like a fingerprint, I think. So, so I, th- I think it, it makes it makes sense to me that it got so big. Um, how are you doing in quarantine? We are big question, big question. Um, <laughs> I we're mean, okay. I'm just like throwing that blanket out there. Well, it feels like we're getting, at least in terms of Hollywood, it feels like they're getting towards some kind of solution or protocol towards going back into production and you know minimizing the risk as best as possible and and whatnot yeah. so it does feel like we're kind of moving towards something yeah it does feel like that i mean obviously a lot of the country's already opened up a lot more than la has but it does feel like we're sort of baby steps just putting our toe in seeing you know opening things back up so so we're doing well you know i'm a little nervous about things opening back up but obviously they have to so i'm hoping it goes well and i'm hoping they find a way to shoot stuff safely because you know there was stuff i was supposed to be doing that obviously haven't been able to do and so hoping that safely we're able to to do some of the stuff that that i've been excited about doing so it's I, i'll say you know it's been over two months and emily and i were just talking about this week about it this weekend it's so long it's such a long time to not see your friends or go to a restaurant or or like to be able to like you know emily's a writer so she can 100 percent work from home i can't like i you know, have not been able to be on set, obviously. So so I will say being safe is the most important thing, but I, I, I certainly am feeling the my own impatience a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels like a, a days into a week, into a month, and you're like, wait, it's summer? <laughs> I mean, I think of something that I watched at the beginning of quarantine, it feels like it was four years ago. Yeah, so crazy. All right, well, I have one last question for you, and I, I ask everybody this because, and people's answers are always varied, but certainly as a performer, and especially as a comedian, and when you're writing your, your own material, your successes and failures and like, how do you, what would be your advice for, for people kind of mitigating that along the way of, of staying with it and how to deal with the failures as well as having to kind of deal with the success and the, and the pressure that that brings? I mean, I'm definitely a person that if anything, I don't, Emily says that I don't celebrate enough. I'm always on to the next thing. You mentioned Letterman earlier. I remember specifically it was such a goal of mine to be on Letterman. And as soon as I finished the set, it went well. I was like, all right, how do I get back and do this again? You know, already like worried about the next time. So I would say with success, you know, I I think you just have to understand that a lot of it is right place, right time, and it's luck and you know, Hollywood is full of stories who let people of people who let success get to their heads and it led to their downfall. So I think you just have to keep that perspective, right? Like you did something, people liked it, great. Now you have to do something else that people like. And the only way to do that really is to be in touch and be grounded. I don't I think it's hard to make uh, great stuff unless you really, really feel 
unless you're really in touch with the world around you. Um, and with failure, you know, I would say try and learn from it. See what lessons there are. See how you cannot repeat it. Um, is it is it a true failure of what you made or is it just that it didn't connect? Because if you're proud of what you made, then you just have to do it again. Just make you can't really be upset about a movie flopping if you really got to make what you wanted to make. And if it didn't turn out, turn out how you wanted it to turn out, well, then there are lessons to be learned from that. And if you read interviews with like the greatest filmmakers, the greatest actors, they all have these stories of things that didn't go the way that didn't turn out how they wanted them to turn out. So, I mean, you know, if Steven Spielberg can talk about how it felt to 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 fail then then and move on and make like 20 of the greatest movies ever made then then so can you <laughs> well uh congratulations on lovebirds it's so fun and i'm so happy for you guys and also the big sick is also streaming on netflix so that's great it's like a it's a double feature if yes. one were to want that which is the beauty of that platform of, of netflix which i love it's like oh there he is again great and uh obviously on eternals i can't wait for that and i really appreciate you calling in i'm sorry i can't i'm not able to look at you while you see me in my closet but <laughs> here i'll you can look at me real quick for a second <laughs> There, I am. there you are. Hi. <laughs> thanks so much, Kumail. And congratulations again. All right. Thanks for talking to me. Bye-bye. All right. Bye for now. Thanks so much for joining me. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you've been listening. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. Join me next time for more meaningful conversations here at Present Company.